0: On this show, we talk a lot about the structures that we see in systems, the very structures that make these systems work. And in this episode, we're going to do exactly the same thing, but we're going to do it to music. And to help us do that, we're joined by Dmitri Tomosko. He's a composer, he's a music theorist, and he's a professor at Princeton University. Now Dimitri is only going to scratch the surface in this episode to look at some of the basic forms and structures we have in music that make us humans derive pleasure from it. We're going to talk a lot about the history of music, particularly from the 1900s onwards and the changes that happened as part of the world broadening and becoming more cosmopolitan. And we're also going to talk about how composers push these structures too far. In other words, they can still be mathematically correct, but they can get more and more complex how we humans sort of lose the ability, or the majority of us lose the ability, to be able to discern those structures in the music, and therefore we lose our enjoyment of it. Now in this episode, Dimitri does refer to a lot of pieces of music, and where possible we've added links to these in the show notes. So with all that, let's go and have a listen to the incredible symmetry that we see in music. Music This is Simplifying Complexity, a podcast where we explore the underlying principles of complex systems. Systems that seem to defy our rational view of the world, like economies, ecologies, or even you or me. I'm forensic engineer Sean Brady, and I'll be your host. Dimitri, welcome on the show.
1: Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here.
0: How did your journey with music begin?
1: Well... My parents bought a piano, an old grand piano that couldn't be tuned properly. And they basically forced me to take piano lessons from about age six onward. And then in junior high school, I convinced them to let me switch to the electric guitar instead of piano. And I think that's where that's where I really got serious about music. I didn't like playing classical piano, partly because nobody ever really explained to me what I was doing. And so it was was a matter of, you know, press this button now. And, you know, I liked some of the music I played, but I didn't really feel like I owned it. But when I switched to the guitar and got a different teacher and started thinking about improvisation, I kind of fell in love with music. So this was still in junior high school. And then I was playing music and I was a good student and I took classes at the local college in math and philosophy and other things. And I remember I had an older friend, he was about four years older, and he'd gone to university and uh, he was a smart guy and he majored in music and I remember asking him, I said, well, gosh, how come you're not majoring in physics or math or something like that? And he said, well, I, I really like music. I was thinking about that, and it dawned on me that I I never actually needed or wanted to find the slope of a curve, whereas I did <laughs> want and need to do music. And I sort of, I think it was really his inspiration that led me to major in music when I went to college. But at the time, my college had a kind of one-size-fits-all program where they made you take a little music history and a little this and a little of that. And I really wanted to focus on composition and theory and thinking about how music worked. And so I ended up designing my own major with the help of a really great theorist and musician named David Lewin. And sort of he guided me through that process.
0: When did you get serious about bringing the music and the maths together?
1: When I went to college, all of my teachers, including David Lewin, who I loved very much, all of my teachers wrote a kind of music I found really, frankly, kind of incomprehensible and repulsive. So this was the heyday of, you know, it was actually the very tail end of the American academic atonal era. So these were people who who used a lot of math to make music that just sounded essentially random. And the math sort of was used to justify the music. I think there's an old Mark Twain joke about Wagner being better than it sounds. And, and so this was, it was really not a joke. Everybody wrote this music that essentially sounded random, but had all this mathematical structure that you couldn't hear. So in college, I quit music because I had decided I would rather not write music than write a kind of crypto mathematics. And I didn't really have a great model for an alternative to writing music that way. So I went off to study philosophy at Oxford. I was fortunate enough to get something called Rhodes Scholarship, which sends everywhere to Oxford. I was even more miserable at Oxford than I had been as an undergraduate. I actually got kicked out of Oxford University and was unemployed and, okay, and so here is the actual honest answer to your story is when I got kicked out of the Oxford PhD program, I taught myself quantum mechanics just basic elementary quantum mechanics to sort of prove to myself that I wasn't a moron. So that reawakened a bunch of math skills that had been mostly dormant. And so then when I went back to college, I had a bunch of math skills that were lying around. I guess at the same time, I had been teaching myself sort of basic jazz piano, rudimentary jazz piano. And I started noticing patterns in the kinds of scales jazz musicians talked about that I could describe mathematically. And I I wrote a a music theory paper my first year of grad school, where I tried to explain these scales. And and so, so one thing led to another, and that the math and the music gradually came together. But I should say, when I went back to grad school for music, I really resolved never to let mathematics get in the way of making music that was actually fun to listen to and, and attractive. And I, I really took me a long time to sort of accept that, that mathematics had a positive contribution to make as opposed to just leading musicians down these blind alleys of abstraction and irrelevance.
0: And do you remember when that sort of moment was? What was the music or what were you listening to? Or where, how did that positive
1: journey begin? The problem with thinking about music and mathematics is mathematics sort of inherently wants to get more complex. If you look at what professional mathematicians do, they build towers and towers of abstraction and, and come to deep insights that require immense amounts of formalism, even to sort of formulate the question. Musical mathematics is fundamentally limited by our bodies and what we can process in real time and what we enjoy. So music is this crazy fusion of the intellectual and the emotional, right? And it's about dancing and it's about drama and it's about expression. It's a kind of, it combines the logical theorem with the infant's wail. And so I think the problem is that the embodied nature of music is pushing against the mathematical complexity and then the mathematics itself is always pushing forward, right? So you have this tension where internally... The mathematical side wants to get more complex and then the dancing human enjoyment side sort of limits that complexity. And periodically throughout music history, there are these revolutions where very complex styles are replaced by much simpler styles. So I think that it's only in the last five or six years where I feel like I have found my way toward mathematical concepts that are really indigenously musical in the sense that they are widely applicable and they represent something you might consider the basis of a syntax or a language rather than just an isolated point of contact between the musical and the mathematical. So can you give us some examples? Can you take out the piano and, and give
0: some examples of these?
1: Well, yeah. So, I've just published my second book, which is a a huge tome of a book, Tonality and Owner's Manual. And I I was working on this book for about 6 years. And the basic idea of the book is that music moves simultaneously along different collections, which sometimes get called alphabets in music theory. So the simplest example, you know, the song Do-a-Deer. Okay, so we have that pattern Do-a-Deer, and then that can be moved up. You can play that pattern just with the white notes on the piano, and if you move it up one white note, you get Ray a drop. So we have Do-a-Deer, and then Ray a drop, and me a name and so on. So what we're really doing is we're taking this very simple pattern, up one, up one, and we're moving it along the white keys of the piano. And what makes this all very interesting are two facts. The first fact is that the white keys of the piano are themselves somewhat uneven, even though they're spaced physically evenly on the piano. If you look at a piano, some white keys have a black note between them and other white Keys don't have a black note between them. So it's kind of like a ladder whose rungs are not evenly spaced, and you're climbing along the ladder and making these regular patterns. And so you have these two different notions of distance that are operative. One is a objective physical distance measured in feet or inches, but the other one is a subjective measurement using ladder rungs, which in this case, one ladder rung is kind of what we call it a scale step or one step up along this collection. So that's the first thing that makes all this interesting. The second thing that makes it all interesting is that music moves along multiple collections at the same time. So I was just moving along the white note scale, but you can also take this pattern and move it along the major triad. So, so our do Deer pattern is up one, up one. And then we move that whole pattern up one. So you can take that same procedure and repeat it, but now with the three-note chord as the underlying alphabet or ladder or scale. So now we have two levels of motion that can happen, and then what makes things really complicated in a musically intriguing way is when you start combining those kinds of motion at the same time. So now I'm gonna play this pattern. But each time I'll move the actual three note scale I'm playing, I'll move it down one step. Or maybe I'll move it down and then up and we get something like this. Okay, so that's up one, up one, and then moving it up one against a ladder that is itself shifting downward relative to another ladder, right? So we have recursive, hierarchical, nested, self-similar motion. And this is, number one, it's complicated enough so that it's not obvious. And number two, these procedures really are central to a huge range of music making dating back centuries and still evident if you listen to rock music or, or popular music, or, or, or if you go fly off and listen to the pop music or the classical music of other countries.
0: So there's something about those structures that is fundamentally pleasing to the human ear.
1: Yeah. So there's a bunch of different things going on here. One of them, I'd say, is that the actual alphabets that I'm using, the major chord, the major scale, these kinds of things, those alphabets are intrinsically pleasing, right? So I could do all of this with a chromatic alphabet and very dissonant harmonies, right? And We could have Do, Adir. We could do this kind of thing. And, you know, the same abstract structure would be there, but the underlying objects would be a little bit more unsettling or spooky or refractory or however you want to put it. So there's certain rhythms, there's certain sounds, there's certain chords that just automatically light us up and and make us feel joy. And so that's one of the things that's going on here. There's also an abstract pattern recognition quality where when I played a pattern like... You can certainly hear that there is a pattern and a structure there, but identifying what that pattern and structure is, is kind of hard. And so I gave a very, I gave an abstract description in terms of the same pattern moving along alphabets that are themselves moving. Most people would not describe it at that level of abstraction and would take a more literal, less structured approach to describing it. So I think another source of pleasure is the fact that musicians can create patterns where we can hear that they are structured, but we can't explicitly describe what the structure is. So that feeling of hearing something where you know what's going on, but not fully being able to explain what's going on in non-musical terms or in abstract terms, I think that's also pleasurable.
0: Is that one of the attractions of, I know very little about music, so this is, <laughs> is going to be an interesting conversation, but I really do enjoy jazz. And that feeling I often get when listening to jazz, is it's almost predictable, but it's not. And the joy there is from that.
1: Well, sure. I'd say this is pretty much a huge amount of music has that character. People say it about Bach too, right? For me, Bach and jazz are kind of, prototypical musics where you hear this, where you have this experience. They're both highly structured, highly patterned musics that are also sophisticated enough so that the structuring and the patterning is not easy to put your finger on or to describe.
0: And that's what we like. We like the fact that we can almost touch it.
1: I'm always a little bit nervous about saying something like that's what we like, because the truth of the matter is there are a lot of people out, a lot of them like different things, and that's okay. And so it is really important to me to make room for the thought that there are a lot of different kinds of musical pleasure and a lot of different kinds of musical listeners, and that that we don't want to get into the business of denigrating any of those people. But I will say that honestly, I think this same kind of structure and predictability is also found in in rock music. It's also found in pop. And so maybe that music is a little more predictable, but you still hear a lot of these sorts of structures there as well. Can you give us a few examples? Well, the general idea of a musical idea. So you might write a melody. It's a version of our Do Adir, right? And now we can move that melody up. So there, I've moved it up along the C major chord. We can turn it around. We can move it down. So... That's like, that is a pop melody that's out there. And so that's taking that little idea, it's stretching it a bit, it's turning it upside down and moving it. And so those procedures are, I would say, pretty close to universal within the tradition of Western tonal music making. So I would say that that's the same kind of thing that you hear Charlie Parker doing or a good jazz improviser. They're just doing it maybe... With different sets of notes, and maybe they're using fewer notes. In some sense, it might be simpler, but there's a lot that compensates for that simplicity. If you go and you look at
0: the underlying structure, is there any sounds that mathematically should be okay, but are not? If we take it as there's some things that sound really good and some things that don't sound really good, but mathematically they're coming from the same place.
1: Again, you get into this thing where sounds really good is, that's not like mass or that's not a physical property. That's a cultural property and a a personal property. I would say one way of answering that question is that for about two or 300 years, Western music was governed by a set of constraints about which chords progressed to which chord. So for instance, the following chord progression... That chord progression was very common. I played what's called a 1-4-5-1-C-F-G-C progression. However, this progression Was really avoided. That's a one five four one, and you know you can you can listen to hours of Mozart and Bach and not hear that progression except in very limited circumstances, like at the end of the piece or only over certain bass notes. But it's it's really something that's avoided, and certainly progressions like this. play that progression and you immediately think, okay, we're in the world of rock and roll rather than, you know, that's classic rock progression rather than a classical music progression. So those are interesting examples of progressions that I would say are mathematically totally fine. I would say they actually sound good to me, but the whole classical tradition from Corelli to Brahms a little bit talked itself out of using those progressions on the grounds that they violated certain assumptions about how music should go.
0: That's the, what I was going to ask you. Why why avoid them? What was the logic?
1: And I mean, ultimately, the answer to this question, which is really maybe one of the deepest challenges that we faced, face as musicians, is nobody designs languages from scratch. Like, why do you say it's raining out? Like, what's raining? You know what I mean? Like the sky, the clouds, it's raining. Something's raining, but we don't... Who decided that? Well, the answer is nobody decided that. You just... You learned how to talk from the big people around you when you were little, and you did what they did because you wanted to be understood. And music is, is really like that. So we learn music by learning specific idioms, specific, you know, when you're in this position, do that specific things to avoid. So basically all of the atonal composers of the 20th century talked themselves out of using major triads and major scales and so forth because they thought those things were old-fashioned and outdated. And so if I had been a better student, I would have learned from my professors not to use those chords and scales, and I would have written atonal music just like they did. So I think the answer is Bach learned music from his teachers, and Beethoven learned music from his teachers, and and everybody kind of just did what everybody else was doing. And over time, music evolved in certain directions such that that certain moves were favored and certain moves were disfavored. And as a result, some perfectly reasonable mathematical solutions got ruled out. And when did they start getting ruled back in again? Well, that's a great question. The answer is basically 1900. So this is what happens in modernism is art becomes self-aware, right? So you have people like Picasso. You know, Picasso could paint In a 19th century style, like nobody's business, but he sees all these different kinds of art being made. Famously, he encountered an exhibition of African masks, which just come from a totally different aesthetic point of view. And he started asking the question why should I paint in the way my teachers did? Debussy famously heard a Balinese gamelan at the Paris World's Fair in 1889. And they use a scale you can't play on the piano that divides the octave into seven basically equal parts. And Debussy was like knocked over by this. <laughs> and he thought, oh, I'll, I'll make music that... I can't divide the octave into seven parts on my piano, but I can divide it into six. And so he invented this... or you know, he started making heavy use of this scale called the whole tone scale to the point where it's it's really identified with WC now as an attempt to sort of recreate this weightless experience he heard with the gamelan. So around 1900, it's a really fascinating story, but you have a bunch of things happening all at once. On the one hand, you have like maybe the first wave of globalization where it's possible for Westerners to really encounter art from other places where you can bring a Balinese orchestra to Paris or you can can have exhibitions of non-Western art. At the same time, you have this incredible revolution in science and technology. So you've got the telephone, you've got the locomotive, you've got the invention of the airplane, you've got relativity. And so everybody is kind of in a mood to rethink the assumptions of their artistic practice. And then you also have the bubbling up of the kind of religion of art and the idea that that the duty of the artist is not just to entertain rich people, but to kind of chart new pathways through conceptual space. So all of these things kind of get tied up together around 1900 and lead musicians and painters and novelists and poets. They all start like really interrogating the foundations of their musical practice. And, and they sort of wake up and notice that, hey, everything we've been taught is kind of arbitrary and conventional, and, and there's a tremendous hunger to try to get beyond that convention.
0: Was there any very specific influences from the non-Western part of the world, if we can use that term, that really started to break it open?
1: Well, this, this is a, another great question. I mean, I think the biggest answer to this is jazz and popular music, right, especially in America, where you have this influx of people of African heritage who, you know, they're enslaved, they're oppressed, they're given guitars, and there's some attempt to kind of bring with them the musics that they've been forced to abandon, right? So the blues is a kind of hybrid style where you are mixing Western ideas and African ideas. And, you know, there's something I call the obligatory percussion track. The idea that music should always have someone playing a percussion instrument that articulates the beat. This is an incredibly common idea in a huge amount of non-Western music, but in Western music, the percussion section is an afterthought. And, you know, someone beats on the drum every now and then, right? So the whole idea that there should be a drummer in your basic ensemble, that is something we take for granted now, but really is an idea that the West rediscovers or borrows from other cultures. So I sometimes say the story of 20th century music in a single sentence is that the West borrowed the drum set and loaned out its harmonic vocabulary. So if you go anywhere in the world now, you'll hear a kind of popular music that has drums and guitars and synthesizers and a lead singer and the harmonies are kind of Western harmonies, major and minor chords, the vocabulary, the song forms are recognizably similar to the kinds of popular music that the pop tradition that begins with the Beatles, the rock tradition. But it is, it's fundamentally a syncretistic ensemble with the drums coming not from a Western source.
0: Well, we were getting jazz and then obviously pop music and rock from there. What was classical doing from the 1900s onwards?
1: Right well so this is a this is a really interesting question so classical music is a very cerebral and intellectual tradition so you had a bunch of classical composers who were trying to theorize their way into a new musical language and sort of the most Notorious and maybe influential figure here is is Arnold Schoenberg, who really sort of talks himself into a new musical language called 12-tone music, where the idea is you make music by ordering all the notes you can play on the piano in a special order, and then sort of use that ordering as the basis for a musical composition. So really, he's a very fascinating figure, because on the one hand, he's an incredibly talented composer... On the other hand, he's acting as a linguist. He's trying to sort of devise an entirely new musical language from first principles. And I would say some of those first principles turned out in the light of history to be kind of questionable and and certainly nowhere near as self-evident as he thought that they were. Basically, the terrible fact is Western composers kind of had the rug pulled out from under them. Everybody... Everybody agreed that the vocabulary of Bach and Brahms was kind of outdated, but nobody could really figure out what should replace it. And so there are all these different attempts and all these people trying to understand how music worked without necessarily having a great conceptual toolkit for figuring that out. And some people had good intuitions and wrote great music. And some people kind of got misled by ideology and and ended up down blind alleys. And it's a very kind of chaotic time.
0: Can you give us an example? Can you play some of the sort of atonal music that was... Can you show us how that vocabulary changed?
1: So I should just say, as a general rule, I'm pretty happy playing music to illustrate things, but I'm not a pianist, so I'm, I'm not going to play Schoenberg for you or Debussy for you. But I think that what we should listen to is a movement of Webern's Opus 7 for piano and violin. These are four incredibly short pieces, and I find them very beautiful, and they are just mysterious clouds of delicate sound that just sort of sit there and make you feel something that you have never felt before. So Schoenberg, early on, set a line of text that says, I want to breathe the air of other planets. And so I think some of this music creates the sense of breathing the air of other planets. And then what happened is that eventually over time, Schoenberg and Berg and Webern felt that this music was too ad hoc and each piece would be organized in its own way and so they they tried to develop a kind of systematic language they could reuse from piece to piece and this was this was the 12-tone style and it led to pieces like Schoenberg's fourth string quartet which is a much more sort of much less delicate and much more kind of aggressive and classical sounding piece but with maybe a little bit more Bach on the wrong notes. So where is it now? Where is classical now? Well, I would say that classical music or contemporary notated composition has really fractured. And in different countries, many different things are going on. So I would say some countries are still holding to the old modernist line that composers are visionaries who are imagining a future that is going to be atonal and that the listeners just have to catch up. And then other places, there's much more a sense of reconciliation with jazz or with popular music or with electronic music. And I would say that in general, There is no real consensus language. There's no set of ideas that command widespread adherence or agreement. And so we're still in this fractured time. And of course, I would say that notated composition used to be really central to the culture in the sense that everybody was paying attention to it. And people like Stravinsky were global heroes. And, you know, what happened is jazz and then rock music and rap music and electronica and all these styles really have replaced classical music as the, the music of the intelligentsia. So classical music has become a notated composition. It's not even clear how to say it, but it's become much more of a niche subculture. And so, you know, I, I think that that has both benefits and drawbacks. But I should say, so one of the things I'm trying to do in my book is to go back to this early 20th century moment and ask the question, how did that music work in such a way that's general enough that we can now take those ideas and repurpose them in, to write new kinds of music?
0: You mentioned rap music. We haven't talked about rap music. How does rap music fit in with you know, rock and pop? How different is it in a, a mathematical musical sense?
1: That's a really good question. And again, I think there are so many different styles of rap music. One of my favorite albums is an album called Blazing Arrow by a group called Black Blackalicious. And that album is very, very musical. It's just filled with chords and progressions and, and notes. And then there are other kinds of rap that are really much more stripped down and, and much less about pitch. For me, I don't see rap as being hugely different from other kinds of popular music. There's much more speaking and less singing, but in terms of the underlying structures that you find there, from the kind of very, the bird's eye point of view I often I often adopt, I don't see it as wildly different from other styles of popular music.
0: So when you think, the maths approach to music. What does it fundamentally say about about the music? and again, I'm trying I'm trying to avoid the words we like, but the the music that hangs around versus the music that seems to disappear and people have no interest in it what are the underlying mathematical things that we see again and again? and we've obviously covered a few of them.
1: I think that maybe. The most general answer to that question, the most interesting general answer to that question is that music is fundamentally about symmetry and about playing with symmetry. And this is interesting because symmetry is really a major, major theme of 20th century mathematics, but also 20th century physics, and symmetry is kind of an organizing principle for a wide range. Range of pursuits. So, what do I mean by symmetry? I think the simplest symmetry that is the most widespread and the most important is what I would call the symmetry of temporal displacement, meaning you you take a chunk of music and you project it forward in time. Another way to put that, a less pretentious way, is to say, Repetition is a kind of symmetry. So just playing the same thing again is a kind of symmetry. And I believe that repetition is something that is positively enjoyable for many listeners. Okay, that's maybe not so interesting, but things get fun and more rewarding when you talk about transformed repetition. So you take some musical unit, some musical idea and you project it forward in time, which is to say you repeat it, but then you repeat it while transforming it. And in fact, the example we started with, that's just a kind of repetition, if you think about it, where each time we repeat, we move up one step along that ladder. So I think what makes music really interesting and maybe different from other human pursuits is that it presents us with a really rich set of perceptual symmetries. There's all sorts of things we can do to a musical idea to transform it. And one of the things that makes music really enjoyable is listening to these symmetries as they're applied to music and hearing, you know, being able to Approximately track them. Again, gets back to this idea of hearing structure that you can't fully put your finger on. And I heard
0: you say in another podcast that the great composers obviously had an incredible intuition for music and all that sort of stuff. But they understood these concepts and essentially deployed these concepts.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. I would say it's also true of great improvisers, great jazz musicians, great musicians of any stripe, John Lennon and Paul McCartney. Yeah, I mean, I think that if you look over the shoulders of any of these musicians, you see them intelligently deploying relationships in a way that is very hard to explain if you don't postulate some kind of understanding the great philosopher Hilary Putnam had what he called the no miracles argument. And, And it was an argument for how you know that scientific explanations are true, how you can rely on scientific explanations. And he says, imagine if like Newton's laws were not approximately true, it'd be kind of a miracle that the earth orbits the sun in just the way that the equations would predict, right? And you see something similar in music, which is like, If Beethoven didn't understand some of these deep structures, it would be a miracle to see them reappearing in so many of his pieces in so many different ways. And
0: anything surprising? Anything surprising that the maths should tell us we should love, that we hate?
1: I think I'm still going to push. Well, again, I mean, we're, we're still back in this sort of Uncomfortable place of we should love and we should hate and you know I, I think I I disagree with like at least the first two two words of we should right yeah, Because yeah. first of all we are actually many different kinds of people who love many different kinds of music and I am very much in the thousand flowers bloom school right so one of the things that's wonderful about teaching music is you can give an assignment to a group of 10 students go write a piece based on this picture. And those 10 students will come back with 10 totally different pieces, all responding to that picture in a different way. And in, in the same kind of way, you can play a piece of music for 10 students and three of them will love it. And three of them will hate it. And then four of them won't care one way or another. So I guess what I would say is that the idea that there's no math of pleasurable. Pleasurable is not a mathematical term or like great music is also not a mathematical term. I would say it is a surprise that for instance, 12 tone music sounds as, close to random as it does, given how structured it is. And it's all too easy to put structure into your music. The structure is really there. There's no question about it. You can find it in the score. There's the structure. And then listeners can't hear it. They don't respond to it. So I would say if, if I had to like nominate music that the math tells us we should love and yet we don't, It's all this music that is highly organized if you look at the score, if you look at the composer's writing, and then for whatever reason, the organizational scheme they used is just a little bit too complicated or maybe just doesn't fit our perceptual faculties in a very straightforward way, and so listeners end up radically insensitive to that structure even though it's there. So this goes back to something we were talking about, which is... The importance of learning music by doing exactly what your teacher, that strategy of imitative learning is a nice guardrail against this way of going wrong. Because if your teacher is a successful musician and you do more or less what they did with a couple tweaks here and there, then you're not going to run into this difficulty where you've sort of used math to create a set of musical relationships that then listeners turn out to be somewhat insensitive
0: to. You're saying that this the, this music has on paper the repetition, the transformation, but somehow we can't hear it. And therefore, because we can't hear it, we can't discern the structures in the music. It's not as pleasurable to us and not as intuitive to us.
1: Yeah, well, this is, of course, many thousands of trees have been cut down thinking about the aesthetic problems here, right? And the truth is, I want to be very clear. There are a lot of people who genuinely love atonal music. There are a lot of people who genuinely love dissonant music. There are a lot of people who love Arnold Schoenberg. He's a great composer. So I think that there are relatively few people who love this music because they are directly sensitive orally to the structures it contains. So I'm willing to say that. On the other hand, a lot of this music does transport you to these otherworldly places and make you place you in an environment that no other music places you into in a very foreign, breathe the air of other planets kind of environment. So I think maybe the problem is there's a disconnect between the technical mechanisms people use to construct the music, and the genuinely strong aesthetic responses people have to the music. There's maybe a little bit of a mismatch between the composer's perspective and the listener's perspective. And this doesn't mean that the music is bad, but it is something that it does raise a bunch of very difficult philosophical questions. That's music that has
0: got the maths, but is not, shall we say, as popular or, or as well appreciated widely as that mathematical structure would suggest. Do you have any music that just breaks all the mathematical rules, that just doesn't fit, that we like, but just, no, it hasn't read the maths rulebook?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's music I like that has very little structure. So a profound discovery of 20th century music is that you can create very compelling music that tells a story with gesture with rhythm with high and low loud and soft fast and slow and you can tell you can tell a compelling story just on that level of kind of giant splashes of paint so there's a wonderful Piece of music that was written for a psychology experiment where a brilliant psychologist hired a composer to rewrite a piece of Beethoven's as an atonal piece. And it's quite enjoyable music. He sort of turned all of Beethoven's notes into different notes, but you can still appreciate it as music. So there's a lot of free improvisation, right? You can, a really good group of free improvisers can create music that maybe doesn't have clear harmonies, it doesn't have scales, it might not even have recurring themes, but just by listening to one another and by tastefully choosing what to play next, a group of people can create a compelling musical narrative without any of the structures that occupied so much theoretical and aesthetic attention for so many centuries.
0: Just to finish, I've heard you speak about this before, and you've obviously talked about it in the beginning of this episode, that the music gets more and more complex, even if you just stay in classical, for example, or in any genre. And then in the same way as that the maths gets more complex when people do maths. And I've heard you say before that then people... Have enough. The composers have gone beyond the aesthetic limitations of the people, shall we say, and then we collapse back to a new genre that is much simpler, much more straightforward. Can you talk about that?
1: Well, sure. I mean, this is something I do think happens over and over and over again, right? And there was a 13th century musical style called the Ars Subtilior, that that's more subtle art. That used incredibly complicated rhythmic strategies. Rhythms so complicated you could you could not imagine. You know, it's very difficult even for contemporary musicians to play. And that's an early example of something that now looks very esoteric. And complex. There's something called the gallant style in the early 1700s, which is a sort of rebellion against the, the contrapuntal complexity of, you know, you can think about Bach's music. He was a little after, but that sort of complexity, it replaces that complexity with a much more simple and direct kind of melody versus chord kind of style. So you can just go through the history of music and, and see this process happening over and over again. In the 20th century, swing is, is this incredibly popular form of jazz and then it evolves into bebop, which is a is a more esoteric and more complicated form of jazz that I love. And then you have players like Louis Jordan, uh, the saxophonist who who switches to rock and roll because he wants to write a kind of music that people love. So you have rock and roll, you have classic rock being replaced by punk rock, right? Where you have symphonic 20 minute rock compositions. You can think of Yes and King Crimson and gigantic laser light shows. And then, and it gets replaced by three or four hooligans Playing great music with kind of the simplest tools. In ecology, There is a famous example of, I think, the wolves and the hares or the rabbits. And so basically the rabbit population grows until it's harder for the rabbits to find food. And it's easier for the wolf population to find food. And then the wolf population grows and the rabbit population shrinks. And then it's hard for the wolves to find food and and they start dying off and the rabbits come back. And so I I sort of think that that's what it's like with the composers and the listeners and, and the composers they find something great and then they start pushing on it and making it, they use up all the easy solutions and they start making more and more complicated solutions. And eventually, I mean, the truth is listeners don't really want to put in a lot of work to to (laughs) listen to music. They, they're kind of there for the fun. And so eventually it becomes too much. And so, you know, something new happens.
0: Dimitri, it's been great. Thank you for being on the show.
1: Oh, my pleasure.
0: Thanks for listening to Simplifying Complexity, where we look at the key concepts of complexity science with expert minds from across the world. Concepts like emergence, self-organization, adaptation, networks, scaling, tipping points, and much more. This podcast was produced by Brady Haywood and Wavelength Creative. To make sure you don't miss an episode, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. I'm Sean Brady, and I'll see you in our next episode.